Jesus calls us over the tumult to that place of rest that God has for all of us. He takes us through the storms. And His grace is always sufficient. Now we commemorate that grace in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. And it's a beautiful day. Did you all thank the Lord for it yet? Okay. Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. It gives us the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day, this beautiful day that You've given us, the opportunity to be here to feed upon that manna from heaven, Your mighty Word. We understand that we can understand the whole realm of doctrine because of the great system of perception that You have given us. All we have to have is a desire to know You, and You will do the rest. So we pray that You will help us to focus and concentrate this morning. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying a particular topic about a place that God has provided. It's a place of rest in your soul. And we found that there were many people who didn't take advantage of that place and they didn't trust God and they suffered the consequences. Everyone here needs to go to that place some of you may be challenged with health issues, maybe financial, might be people, people that you want to be closer to and they're not interested, or maybe people you would like to get away from and they're clinging vine. I don't know what it is, but we all have challenges and issues. So God has not ignored that he wants us to live the abundant life and the abundant life isn't talking about material things it's talking about up in your soul you see there's nothing that satan would like more than to snatch away your contentment and happiness and apart from god there is no real contentment or happiness so god has given us the instructions as to how to enter that rest that so many have failed to do and we simply around here call it faith rest it's that place that we go to by simply trusting god trusting his promises and missing it with the doctrine that we have the promises and so forth and when we do that we're no longer enslaved to our circumstances. It's a beautiful day, but whether it's going to be a good day or not for you is going to be determined as to whether you know this, you could call it a mechanic or a technique. If you know how to use it and you do employ it, then it's not only going to be a beautiful day, it's going to be a good day for you. What if it was storming outside? 
What if it was a hailstorm? Then we would still be able to have a good day. There's a wonderful singer at Baraka Church named Glay Posh. She's got an operatic voice. And she was gracious enough to give Carrie and I a CD of her songs. And one of the songs is called The Voyage. The first line, I'm not gonna, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it to you. If you insist. No, I'm not going to uh, It says, Life is an ocean. Love is a boat. On troubled waters, He keeps us afloat. Isn't that what life is like? I mean, right now, it might be still waters. But beautiful day. We're all, I guess we're all clean and shined up for church. But what really matters is what is going on in your soul. And that's what we're going to address today because I've given you a list of promises from God that will help get you started on this faith rest. We know it's available. It's available when? Today. Because that's all we have is today. And I'm going to show you another way to employ this mechanic, this... uh, tool that we have to maintain our contentment and composure by what I was taught as the essence box. So the essence box is talking about the attributes of God. And I love to do this. I couldn't wait to get here today because I love to talk about how great our God is. And when you start thinking about how great our God is and what He's like, His attributes, you're already on the road to faith resting. And staying out of that worry and fretting and foreboding, fear, anxiety, all those just seem to melt away when we concentrate on how wonderful our God is. So I'm going to put up on the board his attributes, starting with uh, justice. And we just kind of touched on this last time a little bit. First of all, I give a definition. Is that my definition? Okay. Um, y'all are going to have to hold on for just a second. I, I actually have uh, two essence boxes that I could have put up today. And the one that we put up, 50-50 chance is what? Not the right one. Let's see here. Okay. Hey, that wasn't so bad, was it? I thought it was going to be like pulling teeth, but okay. That's where we are now. Okay. So the next thing we have is a definition. Justice. The quality of being just, righteous, equitable, or moral righteousness. Rightness. The moral principle determining just conduct. To act or treat justly or fairly. And that's what we think of when we think of justice, isn't it? We think about being fair. And, of course, this is somewhat foreign in our world because we live in a fallen world. And the Bible tells us that Satan is the ruler of this world. 
So there's not much that we can find that is really fair. But we can always count on God being fair, which is part of His justice. It means the administering of deserved punishment or reward. Actually, we're going to see when we get to righteousness that what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God carries out. So it is fair when He punishes someone. It is fair when He blesses someone. Everyone can be saved and everyone is saved the same way. That's pretty fair, isn't it? Christ died. See, we have the doctrine of what? Unlimited atonement here. Christ died for everyone. And so anyone can be saved because Christ took care of the sin issue. And they're all saved the same way. Then we have Deuteronomy 32, 41 through 42. I, I read this time. The reason I threw this in here is because today we are so unaccustomed to justice that when we read in the Bible when God is gracious, grace always precedes God's justice. When, when His wrath, His, his, his uh, judgment falling on someone. But when that happens, He's not bashful about being just and giving what is deserved, whether it's punishment or blessing. Deuteronomy 32:41. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Some of you might have from the harried uh, leaders of the enemy. It doesn't matter whether the enemy has long hair or whether they're harried. You don't want to be on that side of the equation because God's justice will surely fall. Here's a few of the verses. God is always perfectly fair. It's impossible for Him to be unfair. That's part of His justice. Let's look at a few of the verses. Psalm 19.9 The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Psalm 36.6 righteousness, Thy righteousness is like the mountains of God. Thy judgments are like the great deep. You think of the great oceans and the depth and how massive they are. That's what they're comparing to the justice of God. Psalm 89:14. Righteous and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. So these two pillars of righteousness and justice, it says, are the foundation of God's throne. You can't have one without the other. Deuteronomy 32:4. The rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. And then Revelation 16:7, And I heard the altar saying, isn't that interesting? The altar was saying something. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are Thy judgments. So we never have to worry about God being unfair. 
Now, this is especially true when God takes someone home, especially if it's unexpected. Sometimes if it's children, people start to question the judgment of God. That God's judgment is always perfect. And here's a question that some may ask about regarding his justice. What about the heathen? What about them? In other words, you may have had people ask you before. Well, what about the people who have never heard the gospel? How, how does God handle that? That's kind of a tricky question for some. But we'll address it this morning a little bit. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, how was the wrath of God revealed from heaven? Well, y'all remember the flood? Genesis chapter 6? I'm sure that they recognized that this was God's wrath being unleashed upon them from heaven? Or how about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? This is another illustration of God's wrath being revealed from heaven on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And you see up here in red, I have who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now what this is saying, it's not saying that they don't know the truth. It says that they suppress the truth the truth. And then we are informed in verse 19. How do we know that they have the truth? It's because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident in them. One, one thing we kind of reflect on here is a verse like uh, Romans chapter, I think it's chapter 15. No, it's chapter 2, Romans 2.15. It says that God, and he's talking about unbelievers here, the Gentiles, that God has uh, written the law within their hearts. So what this is essentially saying, that every person, even unbelievers, have a conscience because God has written his law upon their hearts. Even the most... most uh, crude and rebelling unbelievers still have a sense of right and wrong. However, the Bible also tells us in Hebrews that uh, they can, their conscience can be seared as with a hot iron. But what we're seeing here, they suppress truth because they know something about the truth. Because when God imputes the soul to a person that was made out of nothing, by the way, and will continue to live even after physical death, then part of that conscious, consciousness, that soul, is a conscience. And so they suppress what they know as being true. 
It's not that they don't know the truth about God, but that they suppress the truth about God. This will become more evident in the next verse. Verse 20, Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, look up here in red what I have, has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are what? Without excuse. Can y'all see this okay in, way in the back? Back row? Y'all clear? Okay. Having been clearly seen and being understood. This is talking about people who have never heard the gospel. This is talking about uh, the heathen. And how can they know these things? Well, it says by what has been made. Any person can, once they get out of, the, out of diapers and they start looking around at the world, if they're a rational person, if they have any kind of normal mentality, can recognize, hey, God didn't, I mean, man did not put the sun up there nor the stars. He didn't make the ocean, not the mountains or anything. Something much greater than man has to do that. And that's what this verse is referring to. His eternal power and even His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, which was the creation, so that they are without excuse. It's not that they don't have any light. It's that they will reject the light that God has given them. And the light is the knowledge. It is His creation itself. How could you go out on a day like today and see God's wonderful creation and be an atheist. It's just beyond me. So here's a question. Are the heathen who have never heard the gospel lost? Paul shows that they are. Not because of knowledge that they don't have, but because of the light which they do have, yet refuse. What they know about God, they're not interested in. Those things which may be known of God in creation, have been revealed to them. God has not left them without a revelation of Himself. So the revelation that they have, they are not interested in. Uh, they will gravitate to something like uh, the erroneous idea that uh, the world evolved, trying to leave God out of the mix, and things, things of that sort. Then we go to verse 21, Romans 1, 21. For even though they knew God. Now we're talking about pagans who had never received the gospel. The Bible is telling us that they knew God. They know something about God from the creation. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And the next verse, it starts talking about they started worshiping the creation rather than the Creator because their heart was darkened. Why was their heart darkened? Because they didn't want to know the true God, the Creator of the universe, the earth, heavens, everything. They didn't want that. So where did they have to go? They wanted to worship something, so they started worshiping the creation. The argument here is clear. Creation demands a creator. 
it's a it's a sad situation when school teachers can't teach that to their children, to their students. Design demands a designer. By looking up at the sun, the moon, and the stars, anyone can know there is a God. This is what the Bible is telling us. The answer to the question, what about the heathen, is, it's, this is the answer to it, that is, they are without excuse. God has revealed Himself to them in creation, but they have not responded to this revelation by desiring a relationship with Him. If they did, He would bring them the gospel. I'm going to give you a few verses where it's, it's, the Bible is declaring that God would have all men to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But if they're not interested in having a relationship with Him, if they're going to already be negative to the light, the revelation of Himself, then they would surely reject the gospel. He's not going to give the gospel to those who have already rejected the light that He's given. So people are not condemned for rejecting a Savior they have never heard of, but for being willfully ignorant of the things of God and for having no desire to know Him. The, the key word there is willfully ignorant. God has handed out the invitation to know Him by creation. And they're not interested. Their heart is darkened by their evil machinations and they would rather worship a totem pole, the stars, the, the mountains, whatever it is as far as creation is concerned. Here's a verse, 2 Peter 3.9. God desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. This indicates that God also cares for those who have not heard the gospel. You notice that all should come to repentance. He has demonstrated this by sending His Son to die in their place. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. If God can save someone like Rahab out of such a thoroughly pagan society, He can save anyone, anywhere, who seeks Him. Remember when we were studying Joshua? and pay, uh, uh, Here you have Rahab, who was a prostitute in a pagan, thoroughly saturated with idolatry in a pagan society. But this one woman wanted to know something about God. She heard about the uh, exodus and all the miracles that had taken place. She heard about uh, the Israelites annihilating all their enemies and she knew that he, they were headed for her town and she reached out for, to God. Now, it appears that she was the only one in that whole city that wanted to know God and He will do whatever it takes to have a relationship with that person and protect that person like He did a, a Rahab. God demonstrated how much justice means to Him when He imputed all sins of mankind onto His perfect 
beloved Son. Have you ever thought about that before? You want to know how important justice is to God? His own beloved Son, who had been with Him for all eternity in the glories of heaven, Jesus Christ became a man, which is lower than, even lower than angels, which He has already created. Jesus Christ created everything that has ever been created. He stepped down out of the glory of heaven, become a man, because of His love and His uh, wanting to share His glory with these fallen creatures. But then as Christ hung on the cross, then it was up to God the Father that would pour out the sins of the entire population of earth, both starting with Adam all the way to the last person were upon him. Think what that took on God's part. How could anyone question his justice? It would have been so easy for him to say, well, you know, I'm going to make an exception this time because after all, this is Jesus Christ. This is my son. He didn't even make an exception for him. So how could such a God be unjust to anyone? Especially considering that his son died for their sins. We're talking about these heathens, these ones that haven't got the gospel, but they have the creation to know if they want a relationship with God, he's going to bring them the gospel. He'll have a relationship with them. But these people are the ones that Christ died for also. Would he be unjust to them? Of course not. People who ask, what about the heathen who never heard the gospel should be very careful not to impugn the character of God. To suggest that God is unfair to condemn those who haven't heard the gospel in order to dodge accountability for oneself is a very dangerous place to be. What I'm saying is there are people, believers, who would ask the question, or maybe even unbelievers might ask the question, well, what about the, all the numbers of people who have never heard the gospel? Now, that might be just a question that they're curious about. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But there are those who ask that question in an intimidating way. If you're telling people about how great our God is and how just and righteous He is, and they bring up this issue, yeah, but what about those who hadn't heard the gospel? If they do that with the motivation to impugn God's character, essentially alleging that if He's unfair with them by condemning them and them not receiving the gospel, then He would be unfair towards me as well. And that means that I don't have to be accountable to someone who is unjust. You understand why I'm saying how that question is asked? makes a big difference. It's not wrong to ask the question. It's the motivation behind it. And so we go there and we see that those who don't have a desire to know God are going to gravitate to Satan's lies. They're going to be worshiping some kind of idol. But those who say, well, what about the heathen in order to impugn God's character? That's a dangerous place to be. Okay, what about the righteousness of God? Here's the definition. The quality or state of being just are right. Just are rightful. 
It is characterized by proceeding from or in accordance with accepted standards of morality, justice, or uprightness. Virtuous. All these things. Uh, I'm just getting these definitions out of an English dictionary. Because a lot of times I will say a word and people think they might know what meaning is, but it doesn't hurt to have a dictionary by to make sure that you understand the proper meaning of these words. Here's a quote from Easton's Bible Dictionary. God's righteousness is that perfection of His nature whereby He is infinitely righteous in Himself and in all He does. The righteousness of divine nature exercised in His moral government are that meaning His judgments. Isn't it great that we have a God that is always righteous? That's another way of just saying He's always right. And when people want to argue with me about what the Bible says, what the Bible clearly says, arguing with the revelation of a righteous God. So, by the way, if you're a believer, you are in Christ. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit. You are permanently united with Jesus Christ, and nothing in the universe can, as this say, separate us from God, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Paul gave a good description of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. We won't go there now. Just go to a wedding and you'll hear it again, usually. By the way, the last wedding I did was here, and I didn't give 1 Corinthians 13 uh, because that's not far, that's not just far husbands and wives or the bride and the groom. That description is for you and me. It's for every believer. But since you hear it at weddings, everybody thinks, okay, well, this is the kind of love you're supposed to have. If you're going to get married for a husband and wife, that's what that applies to. No, that's for every believer. Just threw that in for you. Now, this gets a little technical, but you need to know this. You need to know this down pat. And it might be surprising to someone if they haven't, understood this before. God's love exists in two forms. He has personal love and He has impersonal love. His perfect love is directed only to that which is perfect. His impersonal love is directed towards that which is imperfect. Some of you might be sitting there, oh, oh, God doesn't love me personally. <laughs> Well, numbers are perfect, are we? Well, we'll get to that. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Why don't you turn there? Because I want you, it's, it's so important that you write this one word in this verse, that you insert it in this verse. And then we'll go to Romans 8, 38, and we'll insert another word there. And just by inserting these, these two words in these two verses, we'll give this verse all the more meaning. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. Now, in, somehow, in your margin, however you want to mark it, 
I want you to put where it says love, I want you to put impersonal. Sometimes what I do is I'll write it in the margin, impersonal, and I'll just take a line and go over there and put it right before love. Or sometimes I put a dot before love, then I'll put a dot in the margin, and I'll put impersonal, and that tells me, okay, where that dot is is where I'm going to insert impersonal. Impersonal love is based on the subject, not the object. God loves us impersonally based on His character, His attributes. It doesn't matter what the object may be. We're the object of His love. But He's not loving us based on who and what we are. He loves us based on who and what He is. Now, Romans eight thirty-eight through 39. Romans 8.38. I love the way that Paul starts this. I am convinced. He's convinced because of the evidence. He's convinced through the experience that he had in trusting the Lord and seeing the Lord come through every time. Total faithfulness. He says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now before that love, I want you to put personal. Now the question is, why is the love in... Romans 5, impersonal, and the love in chapter 8, personal. Why is the love in Romans 8, 39, personal love? That's the question. Why does one have, why does one have in Romans 8 what is missing in Romans 5? Something is missing in Romans 5 that is not missing in Romans 8. Some of you know it. Some of you want to say, I know, I know. And some of you are thinking, oh, man. Are you all ready? God's righteousness. See, when Christ went to the cross and died for uh, the ungodly, for us who are sinners... Before we believed in Jesus Christ, we didn't have His unrighteousness. And He loved us based on who and what He is. Not on the object. There's nothing in us that was attracted to God. However, in Romans 8, 39, He's talking about believers there. And God can love believers personally. And you say, yeah, but you said that God's personal love only goes towards that which is perfect. That's true. You see, when God sees you as a believer, He sees the righteousness that He imputed to you at the moment of salvation. That's a relief. I'm glad that God doesn't see me as I am. In the, let me 
clarify something. He sees us positionally perfect because we have something as a believer we didn't have as an unbeliever, and, and that is what? His own righteousness. How do you know that you have God's righteousness? Oh, yeah. Well, the Bible tells us we do. We're talking about top circle here for those who need a reference point. And where does the Bible tell us that we have God's own righteousness? Oh, bummer. I'm going to say the book and you tell me the chapter and verse, okay? See how you like this game. Are you ready? Romans. What, three people? <laughs> Romans 4, 5. Go there. Romans 4, 5. If you didn't say that, then you need to circle this. You need a 5 by 7 card. Put it on the refrigerator where you'll be sure to see it. See, if you know that God has imputed His own righteousness to you, not because I say so, but because God says so in His Word, then you can say, all right, God loves me personally. Because I have something that's perfect, His own righteousness. I don't have to strive to be accepted by God. I don't have to work for eternal salvation. I've got God's righteousness. Are y'all there? And y'all want to say it with me? Well, y'all are got. You're going to read it. To the one who does not work, but what? believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His what? His faith is credited as righteousness. To the one who, what? Does not work, but believes. Can that be any more clear? Will this make this day a brighter day for you? See, this is what the people that don't know God, they don't know His attributes, they don't know anything about Him, they think, well, I'm going to do things that i really rather not do. I'm going to try to be a nice person hoping that I'll be righteous enough to accept uh, so that God will accept me. We don't have to play those games, do we? I'm not going to say we can be just as rotten as we want to be, but you can. And it's not going to affect your standing before God one iota because you are in Christ Jesus. God sees His own righteousness when He looks at you because He sees us through the eyes of the cross in a positional way. And so that means everything. God can love us personally, which means He can give us a lot more than He can give an unbeliever who He has to love impersonally. Now, I don't want to go too far on this, but I do want to say this. When we are believers, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have God's own righteousness. But you know what? The Bible talks about two kinds of righteousness. What I've been talking about here is positional righteousness. But there's also a thing called experiential righteousness. And that depends on how you live your life. If you want to choose to live your life, say, well, you know what? I'm too busy to go to church, read my Bible, pray, or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, I just can't fit that in on my day timer. You can do that. But you're not going to be experientially sanctified. If you're not experientially sanctified... You are a loser. 
and you're going to be confused, befuddled, angry, disturbed, and life is going to be like my dad used to say, it's going to be a, a long road to hope. But it's your choice. If you choose to get with it, to find out what life is really about, and you study God's Word, and you're a good and faithful servant, then you're going to have so many blessings, your cup is going to run over, you're anticipating even greater blessings for all eternity, you can have that too. That's being experientially righteous, and God is going to reward that. But it's up to you. You don't ever lose what you had from salvation. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He cannot take back the righteousness that He imputed to you, that He gave you when you believed in Jesus Christ. He can't take back the eternal life that He imputed to you the moment that you believed in Jesus Christ. How would you take back eternal life anyway? I mean, it's eternal. Anyway. Are you all ready to press on? Ooh. Veracity. What is veracity? It's habitual, habitual observance of truth in speech or statement. It just means truthfulness, conformity, conformity to truth and honesty. In both Titus 1-2 and Hebrews 6-18 is a very comforting phrase. It is impossible for God to lie. Impossible. So when you're reading in His Word something, and you tend to think, it says that it's possible to give thanks in all things. It's possible. It says that it's possible to have joy in all things. Is that possible? Well, God said it was. If He can't lie, then it must be true, huh? Do you give thanks in all things? When you go out and you try to start your car and the battery's dead, you say, oh, thank you, Lord. Huh? Well, I don't think any of us do that, do we? And it's not, we're not silly about it. We're not saying that when you open the refrigerator and here you have a big, a big uh, pitcher of cranberry juice that was just tottering, and when you open that door and it spills all over you, the ice box, the refrigerator, and the floor, you say, oh, thank you, Lord. I've never thanked the Lord for something like that. What I do is start rebounding as quickly as possible because you would be surprised what can come out of my mouth very quickly that puts me at odds with God. So after I rebound, but see, what all that's talking about is Put it in perspective. It doesn't matter whether it's the little things or the big things. We can use this technique of fake threats. And I can understand, okay, this is not going to put a pall over my entire day after I unmash my teeth. I can start thinking clearly, maybe. And I can even start faith resting. By the way, faith resting, what we're talking about, isn't claiming the promise only in the monumental, huge decisions and, and issues of our life. We can faith rest about, where's the teenagers? A test. You know? Are you concerned about a test? Well, it's, that's not too small, the faith rest. 
You can say, okay, Father, you know, I, I, I've done all I could. I'm as ready as I can be. I don't know what's going to be in the test, but I'm just going to rest that you're going to see me through it and that it works as well for that. Of course, when I was in school, I never really went at it that way. I would think, I'm not prepared, I'm not ready, but just help me at least make a C, maybe. I don't know if that's proper faith rest, but my point is, is even on the small things, don't reserve this for going to the doctor and he says, okay, you got cancer now, it's time to faith rest. No, all the time, every day you can do this. In fact, you have to do it if you're going to remain content and confident and happy in your own soul. Otherwise, the details of life are going to... Your circumstances, if you're depending on your circumstances, all I can say is, Lord, help you. Because your circumstances are merciless. And some of you look like, oh, every, you know, uh, what was it, Tiny Tim? Is that what it was? You know, you look like you're just going like through life like that. Well, good. I'm glad for you. Enjoy it while it lasts. Here's a few verses on God's veracity. God is absolute truth. It's impossible for God to lie. Second Samuel seven twenty eight. And now, O Lord God, thou art God, and thy words are truth. When you open your Bible, you're not just looking uh, for a passage that happens to be truth. You are seeing God's revelation of truth. God's Word is truth. And boy, do we ever need that, right? I mean, today we are told everything under the sun. And it's so great to know that God cannot lie and that His Word is truth. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. What is it? Thy Word is truth. Now, that's a Scripture. The Holy Spirit in, inspired John to write that. And we just came, we're dealing with veracity. If God cannot lie, and the Bible says that His Word is truth, why would we want to question that? Numbers twenty-three nineteen. God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said and will not do it? Or has He spoken and will not make it good? Now, these are somewhat rhetorical questions, but you, the answers should be in the very positive light. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, is the hope of eternal life, which God, what? Who cannot lie. We covered this verse, I think, already on getting the gospel right, but that's, I won't get off course now. It's too late. Hebrews 6.18, In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. I am encouraged when I open this Word, and I don't ever think, well, I wonder if this part is true. Have you ever talked to someone about the Bible? And they say, well, you know, if you don't believe that, fine, but to me it's Mother Goose rhymes. I mean, it's just fairy tales. 
I've been training the kids. I might ought to train you too. Uh, when someone takes issue with you about the Bible, whether it's true or not, I can ask the young people that I've been teaching, and they know. Anytime I bring a scenario, they know questions. And I doubt the Bible is, have you ever read it? Keep talking about the Bible, and they've never opened the book. Of course, they will not read it. Well, why are you correct? But if you say, if they say, well, yes, read, what part do you not agree with? And that just cuts them down, just cuts them down at the knees, just cuts them. Because most of them are lying. <laughs> they haven't read the Bible. They don't have any particular part that uh, they disagree with. They're just like the heathens. They don't want to have a relationship with God. And the God's revelation, they're going to try to demean. They're going to try to discredit it. So if they haven't read it, what, what, how smart is it to discredit something you haven't read? If you ask them, what, what part do you not agree with? Watch them. Uh, well, uh, uh, it's in there somewhere. What? Well, I digress. It's a, good, it's a good idea to do that, though. What most believers do that's wrong is when they talk about someone wants to challenge the Bible, they will oh, well, yeah, this is God's Word. <laughs> you know, they start on their soapbox. They get it behind the pulpit and they start chattering at these people why they think it's God's Word without ever asking them anything. And the people tune out. But that's when they do something. This is true. As you say, you're in the end of the world. You're in the end of the world. You're in the end of the world. And you have to act in and focus upon your great attributes, who and what you are. It just lifts our spirit of you and how you have revealed yourself in your Word. So we pray that you will help us as the the storms of life start to engulf us, that we won't get into anxiety and fear and worry, but we'll use this place, we'll go to this place, this place of rest where we can trust you to see, it through it, see us through it. We pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.